Well, this morning I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel once again in chapter 8. And today we are going to hear some of the good news, some of the best news of the Gospel. But as we're hearing it today, you may not think it is that. We tend to not look at this as the good news of the gospel, perhaps. And yet today, we will hear some of the best news the gospel has to offer to you and me today. It was the highest moment of his life. The one thing that he was now most certain of. And when the time came... He knew without hesitation, he knew with clarity what mattered more than anything. He blurted out, you are the Messiah. You're the one we're waiting for. You're the one this is all about. When the penny dropped for Peter, he knew in an instant, and he must have been on cloud nine, But how then did everything so quickly cave in around him? It seemed to just implode around him. He goes from this moment of clarity to a place, I am sure, of bewilderment as Jesus begins to level with Peter and the other disciples. And as in that day, in that day, today is also an opportunity to hear Jesus level with us. For us to hear his invitation. It's the invitation that was expressed from Dietrich Bonhoeffer many decades ago when he said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. But I'm not sure we really like that part of the gospel message at times. I know that I don't, and I imagine you don't. But this is part of the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ today. What is the worst thing that you can imagine calling someone? Well, maybe you better not imagine that. Forget about imagining that. But Jesus calls one of his closest companions the unimaginable. Not often do people walk around and call others Satan. That's exactly what Jesus did, and not just to anyone, but to Peter. So what happened? I mean, Peter has bought into following Jesus. He has just declared Jesus is Messiah, that he is the one. He is on cloud nine. But everything turned when Jesus began to teach them what they didn't want to hear. Verse 31 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed 
and after three days, rise again. On our journey through this season of Lent towards Easter, it is that time as we begin to get closer to the cross of Christ that we're looking at the death of Jesus. We have been walking with him through this gospel, walking with him as he has done amazing miracles and great demonstrations of compassion and great expressions of grace. But now Jesus is leveling with them and he's leveling with us and Peter would have none of it. Verse 32 says that Peter literally took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. He began to try to straighten him out. And that is when it happens. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The label Satan here literally means adversary. Peter was being adversarial to the way of Jesus. Peter was not expecting a Messiah who would come and, well, who would come and fail. That wasn't on Peter's, Peter's agenda. He was not expecting a Messiah who would come and appear weak. He was not expecting a Messiah who would surrender to the enemy. That's what it looks like to Peter. He, he had a different dream. He had a different expectation. He had a different plan for Jesus, and he wants all of that to stay intact. Peter wants a Messiah who is going to come with force to victoriously rule and defeat the empire. But right here in this moment, Peter's dream dies. And as Jesus prophetically tells them, it will die at the hands of Jesus, quite literally. You see, Peter's dream does not have to survive. And the truth is, Peter is afraid. He is afraid. Walter Brueggemann said this, the truth is that frightened people will never turn the world right side up because they use too much energy on protection of self. And that's Peter. Sit with Peter. As I do, I ask myself, am I focused on self-protection of my dreams and my plans and my expectations, all of which need to die? Am I more concerned with human concerns than with God's desires? Sit with Peter. Would we be like Peter? Would I be like Peter rebuking Jesus because of his kingdom approach to the world? Because I want a political savior. I want a savior who follows my plan, a, a savior who fits my dream. Would I pull him aside and rebuke him? In this morning's devotional, Stephanie Durness Labdell says, to take up his cross meant that Jesus was aligning himself with the will of God, but also the way of God. God's will done in God's way. Namely, through self-sacrifice for the redemption of creation, not through power and violence. God's way. Sit with Peter. Does the rebuke of Peter expose my own mixed motivations regarding how I think Jesus should operate in the world? What about you? What about this day? Do I want Jesus to operate in the world 
according to my motivations and not God's? Are my motivations God's motivations? You see, Peter's dream was misguided. So he did not see that the dream Jesus was crafting is a dream that was so much larger than all of that. But now Jesus offers the way to God's dream for us. This is the way, this is the good news of the way to God's dream for us. Picking it back up at verse 34, we read these words. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, those words are classic words that we read during the season of Lent. We are reminded of the practices of Lent that are rooted in self-denial. That's one of the things we talk about all through Lent, that there's this practice of self-denial. But when these disciples heard this, this was more than um, doing without some snacks or, or without some Facebook or without some other thing that I really kind of like. I'm just going to set aside for a little while. The idea of the cross here, this idea of self-denial Jesus is referring to, is not about some Lenten inconvenient practice. This really isn't even about our suffering. It is about dying. And that's not a very popular idea to talk about, is it? We want to brush over that part. Even people who have nothing to do with Jesus or church talk about taking up their cross when they think about hardships and difficulties, but that's not what's happening here. You see, the moment Jesus spoke those words, this is what came to their mind, littered across their countryside were actual executioner tools of the empire. Here's how you can imagine it in our area. Imagine littered along Amherst Street or going up and down Route 3, you see electric chairs or, or you see gurneys where they execute people. Imagine that all around us. That's what they would be thinking of because they would imagine the executioner's tool of the cross of the empire. So no mistaking it, what this refers to is certain death. Jesus, who just declared to them his death that is ahead, now calls them to a death as well. But this call cannot be extracted from this scene with Peter. Here's really the message. Our dreams, our desires, our wishes that are are rooted in ourselves our ways of power and ambition, our our materially based passions and attachments, our view of how we think Jesus should act according to our plan. What is Jesus asking of Peter, the disciples, and us? What is he asking? Ruth Haley Barton wrote it so well. God is dismantling the false self in order for the true self to emerge more fully. 
the death of that which is false in order for something truer to come to life. You see, this invitation then is an invitation to examine, as Jesus put it, these words. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Can we imagine Jesus pulling us aside and asking us, are, are you more concerned, Jeff, about human concerns than which concerns me? I ask myself that question. He, he says the same thing another way, in another part. He says this in verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I'm asking myself, do we in the church need to hear these words in a fresh way in the context of our world today? What if the church gains the political power we want? What if the church gets the right candidates in office that we want? What if the systems of legislature work just the way we want? Is it possible, is it possible that human concerns are concerning us more than the way of Jesus? And for me personally, for us personally, human concerns when gaining my life is defined and determined and desired by me is what I have in mind, Jesus then calls me to die to that way. And when those things are held tightly and I refuse to let them go, Jesus says that they will cost me my life. That's just reading the text. That's just hearing the gospel. That's, that's him speaking. What is it then that Jesus is calling me to die to here? What is it that he's calling you to die to here? For the last couple of weeks, I, I have been trying to read this text and locate it in our times and our realities. And I began to think about this. I wonder, has the pandemic offered us the grace that Jesus speaks of here? <clears throat> Now, I'm not minimizing the suffering and the loss that's been woven into the fabric of the last 12 months of our lives, or at any time in our lives, not minimizing any suffering or loss. But I don't think that the pandemic has been our cross to bear. You see, the cross Jesus is calling the disciples to and us is not our suffering and our pain and our inconvenience and our hardship. I think we need to be honest about those things. I don't think we should live in denial of those things. But I'm wondering if all of those things, and especially how they've contributed in the past 12 months, if, if what those things have done is exposed what actually may need to die. And I wonder if here are some things that need to die. The certainty of plans. The control of circumstances. The comfort in predictability. The clarity in murkiness. You see, what Jesus does is Jesus blows up Peter's need for certainty and control. He blows up Peter's assumed comfort. And he blows up his attempt at clarity so that Peter can truly live in trust. Is Jesus calling us to die 
to the self-preservation of these in our life. So that we live, as Bergman goes on to say, with the freedom of God, so that we are unafraid in the world, able to live differently, not needing to control, not needing to dominate, not needing to accumulate, not driven by anxiety. Well, those questions are questions for me that are causing me to examine my heart. As so many have said, in so many ways, control is an illusion. Certainty can become an idol and clarity a hindrance to faith. We can build a nice smokescreen around the false self that's fabricated by our self-sufficient desires of surviving our self-protection. But Jesus says here, we are to die. And that requires trust in him and his way. Brendan Manning said it this way many years ago, craving clarity, we attempt to eliminate the risk of trusting God. And I confess that that's an area I need to surrender to Jesus so much more. And I believe that's what the scriptures teach us. Isn't that what Galatians 2.20 teaches us? I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But it begins with me being crucified with Christ, that my way dies so that I can trust in his way. Could it be that this call to die is God's grace to me? to prevent me from losing my true self. The message, paraphrase of verse 36 says, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? Isn't this passage calling us to the grace of discovering who we really are? But then in the middle of this, did you catch it? Did you, did you see that Easter shows up in this text as Jesus is talking to these disciples? Suddenly, Easter makes an appearance. Resurrection shows up in verse 35. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel, some translations say, will find it, will find life. It is this upside-down vision of the way the world is supposed to be. It's actually Jesus making the world right side up. That's what he's speaking of here and in so many places. It makes no sense. It makes no sense in a self-preservation society. But it is the way of Jesus. When we lose our lives to his way, we find the way to true life. It is the principle of the life that grows in faith and trust in Jesus. It is the Easter principle of life. John 12, Jesus said it this way. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In its death, it produces Abundant life. Can we see, can we see that what Jesus is doing is he's offering us grace to see what perhaps must die in our lives so that we might live. 
Referring to this past year again, Carolyn Hockaway Krieger, a professor at Gordon College, wrote this recently. In this ongoing pandemic, some of our losses have helped us to see our own needs more clearly. That's a grace. We can see the ways we have misordered our lives and routines, directing desires toward unholy ends. We have desired our own security and comfort rather than trusting in the Lord. We have sought instant gratification rather than the slow-growing fruit of the Spirit. I wonder if this is grace that we're receiving in these days. Is this the grace we find, the resurrection grace and our dying to that which we need to die to? Is, is this how whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it? Is this the grace that's working in my life right now? Even this, this uncomfortable grace? There are now the very old words of who was a very young man. 65 years ago, Jim Elliott was 28 years old when he was killed and martyred along with four other missionaries by the Wadani tribe in Ecuador. And they were seeking to minister to them and build connection with them. And later, some of the tribesmen who actually killed these young men came to faith. And that contributed to the movement away from violence that was endemic in the culture there. But these words from this 28-year-old young man are enduring words of perspective. It is the perspective that Jesus is giving us here. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now I know that when we look at this passage of Scripture from Mark's Gospel, I know that we often default to this idea of gaining the whole world as based in material things and reality. And maybe we need to see that what we can hold between our fingers and deposit in the bank and park in the driveway or the title that we can post on the door are just really allusions to happiness. But for a moment, remember Peter. Because what he held onto was not wealth and not power and not position. Peter had none of those things. He was holding on to his need for control, his desire for certainty, his assumed comfort, and his attempt at clarity. He was, he was holding on to the self-preservation of his dream. But what Jesus came for was so much bigger because he came to rout out and root out sin in our lives, in human life, so that we could find life, we could find real life in Christ. So I'm left with this question. What am I trying to hold on to that does not have to survive? What am I gripping that ultimately I cannot gain? And do I see that Jesus offers me what I cannot lose when I follow him? Do I see the theological term of consecration to him? 
Ruth Haley Barton goes on and says, one of the great paradoxes of the faith is that in order to really live, we must die. That's the bad news, she says. The good news is that the only thing we stand to lose is the false self. The only thing passing away is that crusty old thing that is no longer useful. What is the crusty old thing in my life that is no longer useful? Whoever loses their life for me, Jesus said, and for the gospel will save it. This is the very good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, let us go and let us die and let us live. Amen. Our instrumentalists are going to come and they're going to play the strains of the song, I give you my life, Lord, I give you my heart, and I give you my soul. Lord, have your way with me. As we now walk into our world, may we hear the call of Jesus to come and die. Is it that certainty, that need for it? Is it that need for control? Is it that, that need for comfort? Is it that need for clarity, like Peter? Is there some other area in your life that is an issue of self-preservation? An area you need to surrender to him? Is, is there some place in the journey he's calling you to trust him in a deeper and newer way? I pray that as we go from this place, that we would go, we would go giving our hearts, giving our souls, centering our lives on the one who gave his life for us. And it is there, it is there in the paradox of the faith, in the mystery of the kingdom, it is there we actually find life. So let us go and let us find life in Jesus.